We at Amazing Stories are thankful for and gracefully accept the donations we receive from our listeners from across the world who count on the unique programming we provide. You too can donate through the link provided in the description section of each episode. Please keep in mind that the continued support from our growing audience helps us fulfill our mission of bringing you a new amazing story every day. Thank you for listening, and we hope you continue to enjoy our stories. next day stank. The sun lamp killed the germs on the slide, but that didn't explain anything to him. He mixed allyl sulfide with the germ-ridden blood, and nothing happened. The allyl sulfide was absorbed, the germs still lived. He paced nervously around the bedroom. Garlic kept them away, and blood was the fulcrum of their existence. Yet mix the essence of garlic with the blood and nothing happened. Wait a minute. That blood was from one of the living ones. An hour later he had a sample of the other kind. He mixed it with the allyl sulfide and looked at it through the microscope. Nothing happened. What about the steak, then? All he could think of was hemorrhage, and he knew it wasn't that. He tried half the afternoon to think of something concrete. Finally, with a snarl, he knocked the microscope over and stalked into the living room. He thudded down into the chair and sat there, tapping impatient fingers on the arm. Brilliant, Neville, he thought. You're uncanny. Go to the head of the class. Let's face it, he thought miserably. I lost my mind a long time ago. I can't think two days in succession without having seams come loose. I'm useless, worthless, without value, a dud. All right, he replied with a shrug. That settles it. Let's get back to the problem. So he did. There are certain things established, he lectured himself. There is a germ. It's transmitted. Sunlight kills it. Garlic is effective. Some vampires sleep in soil. The stake destroys them. They don't turn into wolves or bats, but certain animals acquire the germ and become vampires. He made a list. One column he headed bacilli. The other he headed with a question mark. He began. The cross. No, that couldn't have anything to do with the bacilli. If anything, it was psychological. The soil. Could there be something in the soil that affected the germ? No. How could it get in the bloodstream? Besides, very few of them slept in soil. Running water. Could it be absorbed porously? No, that was stupid. They came out in the rain, and they wouldn't if it harmed them. Another notation in the right-hand column. His hand shook a little as he entered it. Sunlight. He tried vainly to glean satisfaction from putting down one item in the desired column. The stake. No. His throat moved. Watch it, he warned himself. The mirror. For God's sakes, how could a mirror have anything to do with germs? His hand shook a little more. Garlic, 
He sat there, teeth gritted. He had to add at least one more item to the bacilli column. It was almost a point of honor. He struggled over the last item. Garlic. Garlic. It must have an effect on the germ. But how? He started to write in the right-hand column, but before he could finish, fury came from far down like lava shooting up to the crest of the volcano. Damn! He crumpled the paper into a ball in his fist and hurled it away. He stood up rigid and frenzied, looking around. He wanted to break things. So, you thought your frenzied period was over, did you? He yelled at himself, lurching forward to fling over the bar. Then he caught himself and held back. No, no, don't get started, he begged. Two shaking hands ran through his lank hair. His throat moved convulsively, and he shuddered with a repressed craving for violence. The sound of the whiskey gurgling into the glass angered him. He turned the bottle upside down, and the whiskey spurted out in great gushes, splashing up the sides of the glass and over onto the bar. He swallowed the whole glassful at once, head thrown back, whiskey running out of the edges of his mouth. I'm an animal, he exulted. I'm a dumb, stupid animal, and I'm going to drink. He emptied the glass, then flung it across the room. It bounced off the bookcase and rolled across the rug. Oh, so you won't break, won't you? He rasped inside his head, leaping across the rug to grind the glass into splinters under his heavy shoes. Then he spun and stumbled to the bar again. He filled another glass and poured the contents down his throat. He flung away the glass. Too slow, too slow, damn it. He drank directly from the uptilted bottle, gulping furiously, hating himself, punishing himself with a whiskey burning down his rapidly swallowing throat. I'll choke myself, he stormed. I'll strangle myself. I'll drown myself in whiskey. I'll die, die, die. He hurled the empty bottle across the room and it shattered on the wall mural. He picked up a piece of the broken bottle, sliced through the scene, and peeled it away from the wall. There, he thought, his breath like steam escaping. That for you. He flung the glass away, then looked down as he felt dull pain in his fingers. He'd sliced open the flesh. Good, he exulted viciously. Bleed to death, you stupid, worthless bastard. An hour later he was totally drunk lying flat on the floor with a vacuous smile on his face. He stayed drunk for two days and planned on staying drunk until the end of time or the world's whiskey supply, whichever came first. And he might have done it, too, if it hadn't been for a miracle. It happened on the third morning when he stumbled out onto the porch to see if the world was still there. There was a dog roving about on the lawn, the second it heard him, it stopped snuffling over the grass and bounded off to the side with a twitch of scrawny limbs. For a moment, Robert Neville was so shocked he couldn't move. He stood, petrified, staring at the dog, which was limping quickly across the street, its rope-like tail pulled between its legs. It was alive! In the daytime! He lurched forward with a dull cry and almost pitched on his face on the lawn, then he caught himself and started running after the dog. Hey! he called, his hoarse voice breaking the silence of Cimarron Street. Come here, boy! Across the street, the dog scrambled unsteadily along the sidewalk, its right hind leg curled up, dark claws clicking on the cement. Come here, boy! I won't hurt you! 
he called. Already he had a stitch in his side, and his head throbbed with pain as he ran. The dog stopped a moment and looked back. Then it darted in between two houses, and for a moment Neville saw it from the side. It was brown and white, breedless, its left ear hanging in shreds, its gaunt body wobbling as it ran. "'Don't run away!' His throat choked up as the dog disappeared between the houses. With a grunt of fear he hobbled on, ignoring the pain of hangover, everything lost in the need to catch that dog. But when he got into the backyard, the dog was gone. For an hour he wandered around the neighborhood, searching vainly. At last he stumbled home, his face a mask of hopeless dejection. To come across a living being after all this time to find a companion and then lose it, even if it was only a dog. Only a dog. To Robert Neville, that dog was the peak of a planet's evolution. He couldn't eat or drink anything. He found himself so ill at the shock and the loss that he had to lie down. But he couldn't sleep. He lay there shaking feverishly, his head moving from side to side. Come here, boy, he kept muttering without realizing it. Come here, boy, I won't hurt you. In the afternoon he searched again. For two blocks in each direction from his house he searched each yard, each street, each house, but he found nothing. When he got home about five he put out a bowl of milk and a piece of hamburger. He put a ring of garlic bulbs around it, hoping the vampires wouldn't touch it. The thought came then, what if it comes back tonight for the meat and they kill it? What if he went over the next morning and found the dog's body on the lawn and knew that he was responsible for its death? I couldn't take that, he thought miserably. I'll blow my brains out if that happens. I swear I will. The thought dredged up the endless enigma of why he went on. Life gave no promise of improvement or even of change. The way things shaped up, he would live out his life with no more than he already had. And how many years was that? Thirty? Maybe forty if he didn't drink himself to death? The thought of forty more years of living as he was made him shudder. And yet he hadn't killed himself. True, he hardly treated his body welfare with reverence, but using his body carelessly wasn't suicide. He'd never even approached suicide. Why? Here he was, eight months after the plague's last victim, nine since he'd spoken to another human being, ten since... Virginia had died. Here he was with no future and a virtually hopeless present, still plodding on. Was the life force more than words, a tangible mind-controlling potency? Was nature somehow in him, maintaining its spark against its own encroachments? Why think? Why reason? There was no answer. His continuance was an accident. He was just too dumb to end it all. And that was about the size of it. Later he glued up the sliced mural and put it back into place. The slits didn't show too badly unless he stood very close. 
He tried briefly to get back to the problem of the bacilli, but he realized that he couldn't concentrate on anything except the dog. To his complete astonishment, he later found himself offering up a stumbling prayer that the dog would be protected. It was a moment in which he felt a desperate need to believe in a God that shepherded his own creations, because he wanted the dog, because he needed the dog. In the morning, when he went outside, he found that the milk and hamburger were gone. His eyes rushed over the lawn. There were two women crumpled on the grass, but the dog wasn't there. Thank God for that, he thought. Then he grinned to himself. If I were religious now, he thought, I'd find this a vindication of my prayer. He was briefly worried by the idea that the vampires had taken the food, and not the dog. But a quick check ended that fear. The hamburger had not been lifted over the garlic ring, but dragged through it along the cement of the porch, and all around the bowl were tiny splashes that could only have been made by a dog's lapping tongue. Before he had breakfast, he put out more milk and more hamburger, placing them in the shade so the milk wouldn't get too warm. Then he took the two women to the fire and, returning, stopped at a market and picked up two dozen cans of the best dog food, as well as boxes of dog biscuits, dog candy, and a wire brush. Lord, you'd think I was having a baby or something, he thought as he struggled back to the car with his arms full. Why pretend, he thought. I'm more excited than I've been in a year. The eagerness he'd felt upon seeing the germ in the microscope was nothing compared to what he felt about the dog. He drove home at eighty miles an hour, and he couldn't help a groan of disappointment when he saw that the meat and drink were untouched. He looked at his watch, 10.15. The dog would be back when it got hungry again. Patience, he told himself. He put away the cans and boxes, then he checked the outside of the house and the hothouse. While he collected garlic bulbs, he wondered again why the vampires never set fire to his house. It seemed such an obvious tactic. Were they just too stupid? After all, their brains could not be so fully operative as they had been before. The change from life to mobile death must have involved some deterioration. No, that theory wasn't any good. There were living ones around his house at night, too. Nothing was wrong with their brains. Was there? He skipped it. He was in no mood for problems. After lunch, he sat at the peephole looking out at the bowls and the plate. There was no sound anywhere, except for the almost inaudible humming of the air conditioning units. The dog came at four. Neville had almost fallen into a doze. Then his eyes blinked and focused as the dog came hobbling slowly across the street, looking at the house with cautious eyes. He forced himself to sit still and watch. It was incredible, the feeling of warmth and normality it gave him to see the dog slurping up the milk and eating the hamburger. He sat there with a gentle smile on his face he wasn't conscious of. It was such a nice dog. It finished eating and started away from the porch. Jumping up from the stool, he moved quickly for the front door. Then he held himself back. No. That wasn't the way. You'll just scare him. Let him go now. Let him go. 
He felt a tightness in his throat as he watched it leave. It's all right, he told himself. He'll be back. He wondered where the dog went at night. It must have been a master at hiding itself to have lasted so long. That started him thinking. If a dog could manage to subsist through it all, wouldn't a person with a reasoning brain have that much more chance for survival? He made himself think about something else. It was dangerous to hope. That was a truism he had long accepted. The next morning the dog came again. This time Robert Neville opened the front door and went out. The dog immediately bolted away. Neville twitched with a repressed instinct to pursue. As casually as he could manage, he sat down on the edge of the porch. The dog ran and disappeared. After fifteen minutes, Neville went in again. After a small breakfast, he put out more food. The dog came at four, and Neville went out again, this time making sure that the dog had finished eating. Once more, the dog fled. But this time, seeing that it was not pursued, it stopped across the street and looked back for a moment. "'It's all right, boy,' Neville called out. But at the sound of his voice, the dog ran away again. "'The damn mud!' He forced himself to think of what the dog must have gone through. Poor little fella, he thought. I'll be good to you when you come and live with me. Maybe, the thought came then, a dog had more chance of survival than a human. They could hide in places the vampires couldn't go. Thinking about it, he almost forgot that nightfall was approaching. With a start, he looked up and saw Ben Cortman running at him. Neville! He jumped up from the porch and ran into the house, locking the door behind him with shaking hands. For a certain period he went out on the porch just as the dog had finished eating. Every time he went out, the dog ran away, but as the days passed it ran with decreasing speed and soon it was stopping halfway to bark at him. It was a game they played. Then one day Neville sat on the porch before the dog came, and when it appeared he remained seated. For about fifteen minutes the dog hovered near the curb, unwilling to approach the food. Neville edged as far away as possible as he could to encourage the dog. Slowly, very slowly, one paw at a time, it began moving up on the dish. Suddenly the dog darted in and grabbed the meat. You little son of a gun, he said appreciatively. It crouched down on a lawn across the street and wolfed down the hamburger. When it had finished, it straightened up and came across the street again, a little less hesitantly. The dog was beginning to trust him, and somehow it made him tremble. Then he stood up, and the dog ran away. Neville stood there, shaking his head slowly. More days passed. Each day Neville sat on the porch while the dog ate, and before long the dog approached the dish and bowls without hesitation. Every day he sat a little bit closer to it. He kept talking to the dog until it became quite used to the sound of his voice. It came and went without trepidation. Soon now, Neville told himself, I'll be able to pat its head. Then one day, the dog didn't come. 
Neville was frantic. He spent a nerve-wracked afternoon searching the neighborhood, but no amount of searching helped, and he went home to a tasteless dinner. On the afternoon of the third day, he was in the garage when he heard the sound of the metal bowl clinking outside. With a gasp, he ran out into the daylight. "'You're back!' he cried. Neville's heart leaped. The dog's eyes were glazed and it was panting for breath. "'No,' he said, his voice breaking. "'Oh, no!' He couldn't stop the dog from leaving. He tried to follow it, but it was gone before he could discover where it hid. He couldn't sleep that night. He had to get a hold of the dog. And soon he had to cure it. But how? There had to be a way. Even with the little he knew, there must be a way. The next morning he sat beside the bowl as the dog came limping slowly across the street. It didn't eat anything. This time he managed to follow the slow-moving dog and saw which house it squirmed under. There was a little metal screen he could have put up over the opening, but he didn't. He didn't want to frighten the dog. He went home and spent a sleepless night. The dog didn't come in the morning. That afternoon, late, the dog came limping out between the houses, moving slowly on its bony legs. Neville forced himself to sit there without moving until the dog had reached the food. Then quickly he reached down and picked up the dog. Immediately it tried to snap at him, but he caught its jaws in his right hand and held them together. Its lean, almost hairless body squirmed feebly in his grasp and pitifully terrified whines pulsed in its throat. Quickly he took it into his room and put it down on the little bed of blankets he'd arranged. As soon as he took his hands off its jaws, the dog snapped at him, and he jerked his hand back. It lunged over the linoleum with a violent scrabbling of paws heading for the door. Neville jumped up and blocked its way. The dog's legs slipped on the smooth surface. Then it got a little traction and disappeared under the bed. Neville got on his knees and looked under the bed. In the gloom there he saw two glowing coals of eyes and heard the fitful panting. "'Come on, boy,' he pleaded unhappily. "'I won't hurt you. You're sick. You need help.' The dog wouldn't budge. With a groan, Neville got up finally and went out, closing the door behind him. He went and got the bowls and filled them with milk and water. He put them in the bedroom near the dog's bed. He stood by his own bed a moment, listening to the panting dog, his face lined with pain. Oh, he muttered plaintively, why don't you trust me? He was eating dinner when he heard the horrible crying and whining. Heart pounding, he jumped up from the table and raced across the living room. He threw open the bedroom door and flicked on the light. Over in the corner by the bench, the dog was trying to dig a hole in the floor. Terrified whines shook its body as its front paws clawed frenziedly at the linoleum, slipping futilely on the smoothness of it. "'Boy, it's all right,' Neville said quickly. The dog jerked around and backed into the corner, hackles rising, jaws drawn back all the way from its yellowish-white teeth, a half-mad sound quivering in its throat. Suddenly Neville knew what was wrong. It was nighttime, and the terrified dog was trying to dig itself a hole to bury itself in. He stood there helplessly, his brain refusing to work properly as the dog edged away from the corner, 
then scuttled underneath the workbench. An idea finally came. Neville moved to his bed quickly and pulled off the top blanket. Returning to the bench, he crouched down and looked under it. The dog was almost flattened against the wall, its body shaking violently, guttural snarls bubbling in its throat. All right, boy, he said. All right. The dog shrank back as Neville stuck the blanket underneath the bench and then stood up. Neville went over to the door and remained there a minute, looking back. If only I could do something, he thought helplessly. Well, he decided grimly, if the dog didn't accept him soon, he'd have to try a little chloroform. Then he could at least work on the dog, fix its paw, and try somehow to cure it. He went back to the kitchen, but he couldn't eat. In the living room, he made himself a drink and downed it. It tasted flat and unappetizing. He put down the glass and went back to the bedroom with a somber face. The dog had dug itself under the folds of the blanket, and there it was, still shaking, whining ceaselessly. No use trying to work on it now, he thought. It's too frightened. He walked back to the bed and sat down. Cure it. Cure it, he thought, and one of his hands bunched into a fist to strike feebly at the mattress. Reaching out abruptly, he turned off the light and lay down. He lay there staring at the ceiling. Why don't I get up? he wondered. Why don't I try to do something? He turned on his side. He knew he wasn't going to sleep, though. He lay in the darkness, listening to the dog's whimpering. It's going to die, he kept thinking. There's nothing in the world I can do. At last, unable to bear the sound, he reached over and switched on the bedside lamp. As he moved across the room in his stocking feet, he heard the dog trying suddenly to jerk loose from the blanketing. But it got all tangled up in the folds and began yelping, terror-stricken, while its body flailed wildly. Neville knelt beside it and put his hands on the dog. He heard the choking snarl and the muffled click of its teeth as it snapped at him through the blanket. All right, he said, all right. Nobody's going to hurt you. He went on talking intermittently for almost an hour, his voice a low, hypnotic murmuring in the silence of the room. Soon the dog lay still beneath his strong hands, the only movement its harsh breathing. You're a good dog, a good dog. His voice was calm. It was quiet with resignation. He sat down on his bed and held the blanket-covered dog in his lap. He sat there for hours, patting and stroking and talking. The dog lay immobile in his lap, breathing easier. You'll be all better soon, he whispered, real soon. The dog looked up at him with its dull, sick eyes, and then its tongue faltered out and licked roughly and moistly across the palm of Neville's hand. Something broke in Neville's throat. He sat there silently, while tears ran slowly down his cheeks. In a week, the dog was dead.
Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.